pastor here at uh, Get Untangled here at Westgate Church, and glad to be gathered together this morning. Um, I want to especially thank the Yuans, uh, Christopher, his parents, Leon and Angela, who we have been able to steal for this morning. They are here in town for uh, the Chinese Bible Church of Greater Boston up in Lexington brought them out for the weekend. And I caught wind of it, and uh, I was like, well, what are you doing Saturday morning? You think you could spare some time? So instead of taking a nap, they are down here with us, uh, sharing their life, uh, talking about a very important subject, a subject uh, that's very sensitive and lively at the same time, uh, a subject that we uh, interact with daily, especially in New England, uh, the subject of homosexuality. Uh, and un- unfortunately, it's a subject that the church has not always done a very good job responding to with both truth and grace. And so I'm really excited to let Christopher just share from his own life and, and from the scriptures and helping us uh, understand and-, and think about this question, how to navigate it. I've asked him to do three things for us this morning, mainly one, but uh, some of us had the chance to go up to Lexington last night and hear him share his, his life story, and uh, so I've asked him to give us a snapshot of that at the beginning, just so we can get to know him a little bit, where he's coming from, and the main thing I've asked him to do is to talk on a Christian response to homosexuality. How do we, as believers in Jesus, understand, uh, and also, how do we interact with people, uh, who, whether it's friends, family, neighbors? How do we interact in a way that, that uh, takes seriously the truth and the grace of the gospel? Uh, that's a hard thing to understand, so I want him to speak into our lives on that issue. And then we've reserved for the third thing a, a decent chunk of time for Q&A afterwards. Uh, we're going to be done here at noon sharp because uh, they've got more stuff that they've got to go teach on this afternoon. And we want to honor that. But we'll have a good chunk for Q&A afterwards. And that'll be a time where you can raise your hand with questions. There's also little white index cards in the rack in front of you. So if uh, you think of something uh, while he's talking, or if you've got questions and you're not sure you want to kind of ask them in public or whatever, jot them down on the card. We'll take those in. And we'll, uh, we'll spend some time going over those uh, at the end of his talk. Um, Christopher, let me see if I get the bio correctly. Uh, Christopher graduated from Moody Bible Institute in 2005 and then graduated with me from Wheaton College Graduate School in 2007. We were classmates together. Um, and then has, he's currently working on a DMIN through Bethel Seminary and he's teaching at Moody Bible Institute and tra- doing a lot of traveling and speaking. Um, I met Christopher in 2005 in Greg Beal's Principles of Interpretation class where we were taken through, I don't know what, kind, what level of torture you describe that as, but it was a, it was a joyful torture. Uh, but one of the things that I noticed about Christopher in that class is that he was probably one of the most serious students in there and yet also one of the most joyful students in there. And you don't often see that combination in grad school. You got people who are just kind of nose to the grindstone working on their next dissertation or something like that and can't be bothered. And you have people that just kind of love and love people, interact, and and don't often give as much attention to school. And here's a guy who is sitting there in the front row every day with his little MP3 recorder for every single class 
and just taking it in joyfully. And when you get to know his story, you understand why. The grace of God that he's tasted and uh, it's just really exciting. So this is a real privilege for us to have Christopher. Uh, I want to introduce your parents, too, if we can, real quick. Leon's out there uh, by the book table. Uh, this is Leon. And uh, is Angela upstairs? Okay. And so it, afterwards, try and grab them and meet them, get to know them as well, because this is just as much their story in ministry as it is Christopher's. Um, speaking of the book table, um, Christopher and his mom, Angela, co-authored a book, uh, Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. Uh, I finally availed myself to read that this past couple of weeks uh, with a tissue box close at hand. Uh, it is just a raw, honest uh, a testimony of what God has done to save not just one prodigal, but two. As, as Angela shares her story of brokenness and being apart from God as well and, and coming to faith. And, um, and I'll let you give that snapshot. But it's a beautiful, honest story. Uh, and I just, I really commend it to you. Uh, wonderful read. But I don't want to take up any more of your time. So let me pray. And then I'm going to turn it over to Christopher uh, and, and ask him to share. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, your word says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Lord, what a sweet, sweet thing the love of Jesus is. And God, we confess that every single one of us is in need of that love, to be washed, sanctified, and justified by Christ. So we ask that uh, you would minister to us this morning as Christopher shares, that your spirit would be on him and work through him. And we pray, God, that you would be honored in this time. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Brandon. Well, um, it really is an honor to be here. And... Uh, when Brandon was describing me as a serious student, I don't know how serious I was. I was seriously just trying to survive. Um, and, um, you know, I guess, I don't think many of you guys know this, but um, the program at, at Wheaton is, um, is a pretty rigorous, it's a tough program. We're studying Hebrew, Greek, all of it. Not just Old Testament, not just New Testament, but at all. And we have some brilliant people in, the, in our in, and in the program. So, I mean, I was literally just struggling to survive. So maybe that's why I was so serious because I had that MP3 there because I, I felt like I was like not catching it all. But many of you guys probably don't know this, but Brandon of the whole class, he got an award for being, 
for not being like the best of the Old Testament, best of the New Testament, but best of both. So um, you guys really got a gem here. I, I know he probably didn't tell you guys this, but um, I mean, I always look to him like, I wish I could be like a good student like him. Um, and so that's why I sat in the front seat, not because I was smart, but because I was seriously um, surviving. <laughs> but you guys have a, 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 a gift, a gem here, um, and it's just really cool for me to be here. Um, to be able to minister together and, and to, to see Br- uh, Brandon and Carissa. So this morning, I wanted to kind of, before I jump into a Christian response to homosexuality, give you guys kind of a foundation of where I'm coming from, why I even talk about this, why is this such um, maybe an interest for me, um, why is it something that affects me and my family personally, uh, so let me do that just maybe for the first 15 minutes. Um, I was born here in the U.S. My parents uh, were born in China and um, then came to uh, the U.S. for graduate school. Uh, but I had this secret that I kept hidden through high school, college, and even the Marine Corps Reserves. Then in my early 20s, when I started dental school, I came out of the closet and I lived openly as a gay man in the gay community. So then I decided to go home and break the news to my parents. And I told them I am gay. Well, my mom, who wasn't a Christian, our whole family, we weren't Christian, she thought that an ultimatum would bring me to my senses. And she said, you must either choose homosexuality or choose the family. Well, for her, that was a no-brainer. For Chinese, family is everything. But for me, I didn't see myself as being Chinese. I'm American. I'm not Chinese. I'm American. And the family, well, I mean, that's not as important to me as me and my friends. In addition, I thought, well, if my parents can't accept me for who I am, I'm going to just leave. So I left home and I went back to Louisville. Well, this crushed my mother and she says news of my death was better than receiving this news. In addition, the timing couldn't have been any worse. After years of unresolved issues, after years of living as non-Christians, my parents' marriage was a disaster. They actually began the paperwork for divorce. So my mom was literally at the end of of a rope, and she found no more reason to live. And on the next day, she resolved to do the unthinkable. She was going to end her life. Fortunately, my... Mother, for some reason, even though she wasn't a Christian, felt the need to go see a minister, and this minister gave her a little pamphlet on homosexuality. So she bought a one-way Amtrak ticket to Louisville, where she was going to say goodbye to me for the last time. And on this train, she began reading this pamphlet, which shared with her the plan of salvation that all of us are sinners, and yet in spite of our sin, the God of the universe still loves us. And so my mother gave her life to Christ, and she realized that just as God can love her in spite of her sin, she could love me, her gay son. You see, my mom had gone to Louisville expecting to end her life. And in reality, she did. One of her favorite verses is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
You see, my, after a while then, my dad also surrendered his life to Christ, and Christ living in them prepared my parents for the difficult years ahead as I headed deeper and deeper into the world of homosexuality. I spent almost all my free time in the gay clubs, and I went from relationship to relationship, seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found temporarily, but it only left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. And so I began experimenting with drugs, but without much money as a dental student, I supported my habit by selling drugs. And I sold to friends, classmates, and even a professor. You see, I thought I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But four months before I was to receive my doctorate, the administration expelled me. So I moved to the bright lights and big city of Atlanta, Georgia, and there I quickly took over the drug scene in the gay community, and I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day, because according to the world, I had it all. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. I had exchanged the truth of God for a lie and began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Because in my world, I had become God. My parents had no idea that I was doing drugs or even selling drugs, but they knew my biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. So they tried to reach out to me, and I wanted nothing to do with it. They flew down to Atlanta one time, and after the second day, I told them to get out. And you know, they weren't preaching at me, telling me what to do, bashing me over the head with the Bible. They weren't doing any of that. But just the fact that God had so transformed their lives that they radiated Jesus, that in itself was offensive to me. And I told them to get out, and I didn't even give them an opportunity to call their friends to pick me up. But my dad wanted to give me something before he left, and it was his very first Bible. And they walked out the door, and as soon as my parents left, I took my dad's Bible, and I threw it in the trash can. I wanted nothing to do with God, and certainly nothing to do with the Bible. And after that visit, it was more than obvious to my parents that I was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. But my parents committed not to focus upon the hopelessness, but upon the promises of God. And along with over a hundred prayer warriors from church, from the Bible study fellowship group, they began to cry out to God for me. And my mother began to pray a very bold prayer, which was, God, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. Whatever it takes. That's a bold prayer for a mother to make. But she was desperate. And in her desperation, she fasted every Monday for seven years and once fasted 39 days on my behalf. She would literally spend hours every morning in her prayer closet in her knee, on her knees, for hours, reading her Bible, pouring her heart out before God, because she knew that it would take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the Father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. 
This miracle came one day with a bang on my door. I opened up my door and on my front doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with the street value equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I had started with a bright future among society's finest in academia, and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in the Atlanta City Detention Center. And so I tried calling home, dreading making that phone call, as I imagined the earful that I was going to get on the other line. But my mother's first words were, Son, are you okay? No condemnation, no berating words, just words of unconditional love and grace. You see, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not his wrath. It's not his anger. But it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out his irresistible grace and drawing me to himself through the words of my mother. Actually, my mom was excited to get that phone call, if you can believe it or not, because I hadn't called home in years, and she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. So she hung up that phone. She knew she had to do just as that good old hymn says, count your blessings, name them one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, she had to count her blessings. So she hung up that phone and ripped off a little piece of adding machine tape and wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is in a safe place compared to before. And he called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list of blessings and taping more pieces of adding machine tape to it. And today, this list of blessings is longer and taller than she is. Three days later, as I was walking around the cell block and honestly trying to stay clear away from those nasty criminals, because of course I did not think I was a criminal, and I passed by this garbage can and as I looked at the trash, I thought, this represents my life. I'm from upper-middle-class suburb of Chicago. My father has two doctorates. I was on my way to become a doctor. I had it made. And now I found myself among common criminals. Trash. And with my head down, I was about to pass by this garbage can, but something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over picked it up, and it was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell, and for the very first time, I opened up that good book and read through the entire Gospel of Mark that night. But honestly, I did not think this was the answer to my problems. I thought I've got an enormous amount of time on my hands, 
and I better pass it somehow. But as some of you know, what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper, but what we have in our Bibles is the very breath of God. And it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin and my rebellion, and it wasn't a pretty sight, and I thought things couldn't get any worse. I was wrong. A couple weeks later, I was called in a nurse's office. They handcuffed me, chained my hands around my waist, shackled my feet together, she sat me down, shut the door behind me, and immediately I knew something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words and couldn't even give me eye contact, so she resigned to writing something on a piece of paper and slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down at this piece of paper, and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read HIV positive. The days after were dark and lonely. I was sentenced to six years, better than ten years to life, but news of my HIV status felt like a death sentence. One night as I was laying in my bed, I noticed in the metal bunk above me something scribbled. And it read, If you're bored... Read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You see, at the most hopeless point in my life, God was using the words penned by a prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation to tell me that regardless of who I was and what I had done in the past, he still has a plan for me. I had no idea where this plan was going to take me, but he gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual, and God was convicting me in my dependencies. The most obvious was drugs, but within a few months, he completely delivered me from that. But the last thing that I was holding on to was my sexuality. As I was reading the Bible, I couldn't get around the fact that God loved me unconditionally. But I also came across some passages which seemed to condemn that core part of who I thought I was, my sexuality. And so I went to a prison chaplain and I asked him his opinion on this issue. And to my surprise, this prison chaplain actually told me that the Bible does not condemn homosexuality. And he gave me a book from his bookshelf saying this book explains that view. So with much curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding biblical justification for homosexuality. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. And from a purely human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book was claiming, to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God, His Word, and His unmistakable condemnations against homosexual sex. I couldn't even finish the book, and I gave it back to the chaplain. So I turned to the Bible alone. 
I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of Scripture looking for justification for homosexuality, looking for anything, looking for justification for monogamous, loving, consensual homosexual relationships. I never found any. And so I was at a turning point, and a decision had to be made. Either abandon God and His Word to live as a gay man by allowing my sexuality to dictate who I was. Or abandon homosexuality by liberating myself from my feelings and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was clear and obvious. I chose God. As the days and weeks and months of abstinence passed, I realized that my sexuality is not an inseparable aspect of who I am as a person. See, I always told myself that God loves me unconditionally and He doesn't want me to change. But I realized that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. See, my identity should never be defined by my sexuality alone. My identity is not gay or homosexual or even heterosexual for that matter. But my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy for I am holy. I thought that the opposite of homosexuality was heterosexuality. But actually, the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. And God was telling me, don't focus upon your sexuality or your, or your feelings, but focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity. Because change is not the absence of struggles, but change is the freedom to choose holiness in the midst of our struggles. The ultimate issue is not my struggles, my sexuality, my passions or desires, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal His plan for my life, and He called me to full-time ministry while I was in prison, and I realized that it didn't matter where I was, whether in prison or out of prison, because my calling on life would remain the same regardless of the location. And with that change of heart, God did another miracle, and He shortened my sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left of my prison sentence, I knew if I was going to continue on in ministry, I'd better learn more about the Bible. So I called on collecting my parents, and I asked them to mail me an application to the only Bible college I had ever heard of in Chicago called Moody Bible Institute. But then there was silence on the other line because I think they both dropped their phones. <laughs> they mailed the application into me to prison. I quickly filled it out until I realized I needed references from people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. The only people I could find was a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my references to Moody Bible Institute. So amazingly, Moody accepted me. They'll accept anyone, I think. Um, so, uh, so imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question. I started, uh, well, in, uh, I got out of prison in July. I started in the very next month. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question what did you do this summer? <laughs> I graduated from Moody in 2005, went on to get uh, my Master of Arts in Biblical Exegesis from Wheaton College Graduate School, um, working on my doctorate of ministry now at Bethel Seminary, St. Paul, 
just finished this book, uh, had the blessing to write a book with my mother that was released last year. And God has such a sense of humor because not only uh, has God opened up doors for me to uh, speak and travel on the issue of homosexuality, but I'm back at Moody teaching in the Bible department. So I tell people, my resume says I went from prisoner to professor. Not many professors can say that, but only God can do that. So what is a Christian response to homosexuality? You know, as Brandon was saying, you know, we as the body of Christ have really a bad reputation when it comes to this issue of homosexuality and how um, often just argumentative and negative uh, of an approach we have, and sometimes just backwards and old-fashioned. And um, so this morning, I, I want us to kind of really t- revisit how we should approach this issue of homosexuality, and more specifically, people who have been impacted by homosexuality. Uh, there's a book that's called Unchristian. Anyone heard of this book written by David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons? Um, it's, a, it's a great book. If you have any desire to minister to the millennial generation, um, I, I think it's a book that, we should, that, that you should read. Uh, David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons, they did a survey and they looked at uh, young Americans aged 16 to 29 and how they viewed the church. And what they found was staggering. What they found was that we are viewed as being Confusing, not accepting, boring, insensitive, out of touch, too political, old-fashioned, hypocritical, judgmental, and guess what's at the very, very top? Anti-homosexual. And look at the numbers. Those outside the church, 91%. We might as well say everyone believes that Christians are anti-homosexual. Then look at the numbers, the second column, those young Americans that are churched. 80%, so that's 8 out of 10 of our youth and young adults believe that the church, Christians, we are anti-homosexual. And compare those to the numbers, all the other numbers, that's the highest by far. I think the second highest is judgmental, 52%. But really, those numbers are staggering. It's no wonder why people, we, we see our youth and young adults kind of once they go off to college, not coming back to the church. But I want us to note something, what it doesn't say. It does not say anti-homosexuality, which maybe I could understand. Kind of the issue that God, um, as evangelical Christians, we believe that the Bible does not condone homosexual relationships, homosexual sex, but that's not what it says. It says we are perceived as being anti-homosexual. Three letters, big difference. One pertaining to the issue, and the other one pertaining to the person. So we are perceived as being against gay people. And I would hope, if you spent any time in God's Word, that you would realize it's not that God is against people, He's against our sins. He's against living for ourselves. He is for people, desiring us to turn to him and turn for our ways, but he's not against people, and so neither should we. And yet we must remember that someone's perception 
is there reality? There's many ways that we can approach this issue. Politically, looking at different policies in government that's um, wanting to be changed in law, psychologically, sociologically, developmentally. But I just want to be really upfront this morning with how I want to approach this issue with the Christian response to homosexuality. I want to use as our foundation the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that okay? I want to start there, I want us to continue there, and I want us to land there. That that should be our guiding light through this issue. I mean, as a matter of fact, that should be our guiding light for everything. Amen? And so let us, this morning, kind of just throw aside maybe other preconceptions that we might have had on this issue, and let us try to use the gospel as our guide as we approach a Christian, a redemptive approach to homosexuality. Four things that I want to touch on this morning, uh, four categories, and the first has to do kind of more with our attitude. I think before we even do anything uh, responding to this issue or responding to people um, who have been affected by homosexuality, we need to look at ourselves. Look in the mirror. We need to be convicted ourselves. I mean, if we see homosexuality as a, a moral, immoral issue, a sinful nature issue, we need to be convicted about our own brokenness, of our own sinfulness. And, and the reason is because as I lived as a gay man, I felt the church was telling me that gay people deserved a hotter place in hell. That somehow Jesus had to hang on the cross a little bit longer for gays and lesbians. And yet we know that's far from the truth. Homosexuality is not the worst sin. There is one unforgivable sin, and that's grieving the Holy Spirit, not homosexuality. And yet often within the church, we kind of overlook sins, whether it's gossiping or slandering or jealousy or coveting or even adultery. And yet, heaven forbid, homosexuality, well, that's one of those things that we can't even talk about. It's so, you know, just uncomfortable. So, you know, as homosexuality, we need to see that it's not the worst sin. And, and I know, because some people, when, when, when we think about homosexuality, it can be just very untasteful and detestable and just kind of gross to think about a man and a man or a woman and a woman. And I think, actually, that feeling of disgust that you might have when you think about homosexuality is a good reminder. Reminder of what? It's a reminder of that that feeling that you have of disgust must be just a fraction of what God must feel when he looks at our own sin. And maybe even more because we know better and we have the Holy Spirit. So our sin is just as odious in the eyes of God. Because hopefully as we approach this issue with conviction, we will take a posture of humility because our desire is to lead people to Jesus. Our people is to draw people to God. And yet a holier-than-thou attitude has never won anyone to Christ, right? I mean, have you ever met anyone that came to Christ through, you know, oh, this old lady, I came to Christ because this old lady, she was so pompous. No, <laughs> you know, it's someone, you know, this, she was so gentle and compassionate and humble. She prayed for me. So it's, we need to, let's, let's take 
first of all, make sure our attitude right, is right, that we're convicted about our own brokenness. We're not better than anyone else, but by the grace of God, and really lead us to humility. So conviction is number one. Number two is con- uh, consistent. See, as I looked at the ministry of Jesus through the Gospels, I see how Jesus was so patient and compassionate and forgiving to those sinners. I mean, not just any sinner, but just those bad sinners, the prostitutes and the tax collectors, Samaritan, all those people that just were considered just shunned because they were so bad. And yet, who was he hardest upon? Those religious Pharisees. Why? Because they were hypocrites. They were living inconsistent to the law of God. And so I believe we should always be looking at our own lives and seeing what are those things in our own lives that might be a little bit inconsistent to the Word of God, especially on the issue of homosexuality. And I feel that culture has kind of influenced us in a few ways, in three ways specifically. First, regarding relationships. See, relationships is so important to us, especially in the gay community. In the gay community, relationships is like everything, right? Boyfriend, girlfriend, gay marriage. And yet in our culture, too, in in, in America, relationships is is such a big deal. Marriage is is a big deal. It's, it's, you know, sometimes just held up to be this goal, this pie in the sky. If you attain that, then you'll be so happy. You know, we look at all our movies coming out of Hollywood. How do they usually begin? A man or woman who's single and miserable. They meet someone, they hook up, and then they're so happy, right? And, and we instill that into our children as well. You know, the fairy tales that we teach all our children, how do all fairy tales end? They get married and they live happily ever after. And yet we never get the 10-year checkup or the 20-year checkup. I mean, hopefully they're still living happily ever after, but maybe not. But really, that should not be our, the goal. Marriage is not our goal in life. I mean, Jesus should be our goal in life. But marriage is not where we attain contentment. We can get happiness that way. But you, and don't get me wrong, I believe we must lift up the beauty of marriage. But you know what we've done? We have done that at the expense of singleness. So now singleness now has become this consolation prize. I'm so sorry you're stuck with singleness. And, you know, I have a, a good friend who uh, was a missionary for five years in China, came back to the U.S., and, and um, for that first year, she went to a conference, met a lot of her old friends, and so that she hadn't seen for many, many years. And so, you know, some of the first questions that they asked were, you know, so are you dating anyone? Are you married? And she said, no, I'm still single. And, you know, three of those friends on three separate occasions at the same conference, you know what they said? Can I pray for you? You know, I mean, it was as if she had cancer. She doesn't have cancer. She's single. And so singleness, not only is this consolation prize, but singleness has become almost this curse. And I believe one of the main reasons why we're in this kind of whole mess about marriage is because if singleness is a curse and no one deserves to be single, then marriage is a right. 
So as we try to focus more upon marriage, I think we're getting it wrong and making the problem worse. Not to say that we should ignore marriage. I think we should continue to focus and foster godly, healthy, loving marriages. But if we continue to do that at the expense of singleness, the problem's going to get worse. Because what does the Bible say? Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says that marriage is a gift and singleness is a gift. But we're so easy to kind of, you know, agree with the first half. Oh, amen, marriage is a gift. But then we say, singleness, on the other hand, whew, that's a calling. You know, you really have to be special to be single. But I've spoken to married people, and I know marriage takes work. Marriage, you have to give of yourselves. You need to love sacrificially, love unconditionally, and husbands our jobs are to lay our lives down for our wives. Right, ladies? Amen? Husbands, our jobs are to do that. And so tongue-in-cheek, you know what I say? I say marriage, that's a calling. Singleness, that's a gift. I don't have to lay my life down for anyone yet. <laughs> and, you know, I'm not lowering one at all. I'm not trying to lower one below the other. I'm just saying I believe biblically, especially as we live as people of the New Covenant, as we lift up the beauty and gift of one, we must lift up the beauty and gift of the other. Because Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22, I don't know if you knew this or not, but Jesus said that there will be no marriage in heaven. So I don't want to ruin your weekend, but we're going to be single in eternity. But you know why? Because we will be wed to the Lamb of God. And so it's not that singleness is the temporary state before marriage, but marriage is a temporary state before eternity. John Piper said this about marriage, our, the earthly um, context of marriage between a husband and a wife, that it is an image. It's, it's an image of an eternal reality. It's a symbol of that eternal reality of Christ and his bride, the church. And when he, in eternity that becomes actualized, there's no need for the earthly symbol. And so we need to see and, and look at it as um, really that we need to kind of have a balanced view of, of singleness and marriage. Often people will ask me, are you called to singleness? I believe we need to have a paradigm shift of what it means to have a calling because often we think a calling means that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. But reading through Scripture... And looking at history of the saints that have gone before us, I see how women and men have, uh, women and men of God, how some of them, they were called to one thing for a period in their life, and then they were called to something else for another period in their life. Does that mean that first calling was wrong? No, that just meant that's what called them to for that period in their life. So in the same way, I think a, a, a calling to singleness does not necessarily mean lifetime. It could mean this is what I'm just here for now. And so now when I tell people, you know, or, or, or when they ask me, are you called to singleness? I tell them first, I don't know about tomorrow, which is true. But I tell them, I know I'm called to singleness today. And you know what that does? That frees me up to live fully in the calling that God has placed me in today. Not because of some mistake, not because of some punishment, but because I know he is sovereign. And so I, I think that we need to really um, 
have a more consistent view of relationships. Second, we must have a consistent re re uh, view regarding sexuality as well. Because what is it that God calls us to regarding sexuality? Most people will say, well, that's easy. It's heterosexuality. That's what God calls us to. But as I look at the term heterosexuality, which means being attracted to the opposite gender or having sex with the opposite gender, I see that that is a quite broad term that encompasses adultery, fornication, lust, pornography, all these things that God clearly calls sin. So if heterosexuality is too broad of a term for us to seek as a goal, and if it's obviously not homosexuality that God is calling us to, what is God calling us to? Holy sexuality. And what is holy sexuality? I only see two scenarios for the outworkings of our sexuality throughout Scripture. First, if you're married, complete faithfulness to your spouse of the opposite gender. Or if you're single, complete faithfulness through abstinence and celibacy. And I don't have a term for that, and so I call that holy sexuality. And what I like about that is this applies to everyone. All of us, male, female, whether you have homosexual feelings or heterosexual feelings, we all need to pursue holiness. I have a friend that I think helps illustrate this point. He lived as a gay man for many years, became a believer, came out of homosexuality. He grew up, though, kind of never having any interest toward girls, and he just thought, you know, I'm going to be single for the rest of my life, and he was totally fine with that. He was in ministry, and um, there was another young lady that was in ministry with him. She came from a broken past, not homosexuality, but was very promiscuous heterosexually with other men, had several abortions as well, and she thought, I'm just kind of done dating with guys because she wanted to focus on a relationship with God. And so these two became really close friends. They were best buddies. There was never any of that kind of weirdness that happens between a guy and a girl. You know, does he like me? Does she like me? And they just were, they shared everything. They were very uh, tight. And after some time, uh, he started noticing some things about her. Her hair. She smelled good. And she had curves. And he, after some time, he kind of, you know, he says, puberty is hard going through once. Try going through puberty twice. Well, he got up enough courage, asked her out on a date, and eventually he asked her to marry him. And this is so neat. On the wedding night, he told his new bride, honey, I cannot explain this. I am not attracted to any other women. I'm only attracted to you. That is holy sexuality. I believe if God brings two people together into that miracle of one union flesh, he can provide all those two people need to fulfill that covenant relationship. Holy sexuality. So we must be consistent regarding relationship, sexuality, and change. Because when we think about change applied to homosexuality, sometimes we think that, well, change means going from gay to straight or no longer having those feelings. But do we apply those same principles to anything else that, you know, you must no longer be tempted? Let's say I have a friend who was a drunk for years, comes to Christ, stops drinking for years. He doesn't have any liquor. But then I talk to him and he says, I still have the urge to pick up a beer. Would I then say, you haven't been changed. We need to lay some hands on you. You need some deliverance. No. 
I actually think that the manifestation of God's grace is more evident in his life because he has to say no to his flesh and say yes to God. That's why, as I said in my testimony, change is not the absence of struggles, but change is the freedom to choose holiness in the midst of our struggles. Because think about this. God's faithfulness is not proved by taking us out of our struggle. God's faithfulness is shown by carrying us through. That's God's faithfulness. So we need to be convicted, we need to be consistent, and we need to be compassionate as well. I, I teach at Moody Bible Institute, um, and often I have students that share with me that um, they wrestle with their sexuality. They think they're gay, they have same-sex attractions, and then along with me telling their, uh, them telling me their story, they tell me I've never told anyone. And they also tell me things like they hate themselves. They wish they were never born. They feel rejected, despised, suffer depression, and often suicide. You know, that should move us that there are people within the church, within our community, wrestling with these issues and feel like death is the answer. And so we as a body of Christ need to see that often this can be an issue between life and death. So how can we as the church be a more compassionate, safe place? Well, first of all, simply just expect that this is present here within the body of Christ, that we have believers wrestling with same-sex attractions. We have brothers and sisters in the Lord who have family members who have embraced homosexuality, that, that we should not be surprised that um, there are people wrestling with these issues. We should not be surprised that we have members that are wrestling with sin. I mean, because what is the church? What is the body of Christ? Is the church uh, a nice social club where we have it all together? Or is the church for broken, needy people who need Jesus? I'll be totally honest with you guys. I am broken and I desperately need Jesus. Anyone else out there that needs Jesus? Anyone need Jesus? I mean, let us, as broken, needy people, hand in hand, walk to him. Because he has the answer, because he is the one that can make us whole. And so simply not be surprised that this is an issue right within the body of Christ, right within the church. And yet, on the other hand, don't be kind of paranoid or suspicious, because I know when I came out to my mom, you know, before we all came to Christ, she thought, kind of, she began thinking everyone was gay. You know, she was like, they're sitting so close together. Maybe they're gay, you know. He's wearing pink. You know, her gaydar was going crazy. Um, but, you know, so don't be paranoid. But really, just simply not be surprised that we have people right, you know, in, in our pews, in our, in our home groups that, that are wrestling with this issue, who have loved ones also possibly that are gay. Um, and, and, and be careful not to stereotype as well, because sometimes we think, oh, gay men are this way, or, or lesbian women are, the, you know, are, are, are only butch and, you know, wear leather and ride motorcycles, or, you know, gay men are designers, and, you know, no, it's, that's, those are stereotypes that, that, that don't always apply and can be sometimes hurtful, because I know men that are very artistic and, and not your typical alpha male, and they don't at all struggle with homosexuality, but I also know some lesbians that are just beautiful, feminine young ladies. 
um, and, and they're lesbian. So be careful with our stereotypes. Second, know what is, what is your position on this issue. Are you able to articulate um, what you believe on this? And what I'm talking about is not, it's a sin. Don't do it. Because let me tell you, that doesn't minister to people. But what we want when it comes to this issue of homosexuality is our desire is to draw people into a relationship with Jesus so that they will fully surrender all that they are to him, including their sexuality. That is our desire. I mean, that's our desire for anybody, is to draw people to Jesus. So be able to articulate that. Um, third, if you have a friend that you are maybe kind of curious whether they're wrestling with this issue with same-sex attraction or sexuality, and you've been thinking, how do I bring it up to them? Don't. Can you imagine if someone kind of came up to you out of the blue and just asked, so, are you struggling with, you know, homosexuality? <laughs> you know, it'd be really awkward. So, <laughs> so I say what you can do is emphasize your commitment to them. Tell them this. You know, I just want you to know that I thank God for you. I thank God that he put you into my life as a brother in the Lord, as a sister in the Lord. And I just want you to know that anything you say or do can never change our relationship. And you know, by saying that, that creates a safe place and invites them in. We should be doing that with anything, with all of our friends. We should always be a safe place for people to be open to share their burdens. And then fourth, uh, this applies a lot to our youth today, especially as we hear so much about the bullying that happens within our youth in high school, in junior high, grade school, the, um, also often the gay teen suicides, um, that we need to be really proactive on the bullying. The bullying just simply needs to stop. The teasing, uh, you know, and, and, and right now it seems to be kind of the government and, and the uh, public schools that are on the forefront on fighting bullying and teen suicide. But wouldn't it be amazing if it was the church that was heading that up? That it was the ch- I mean, shouldn't that be, I mean, it isn't, there's nothing Christ-like about bullying. There's nothing Christ-like about teasing. And should we at least simply agree with where the schools, and of course the school often will take it in a different direction and have kind of another agenda or, or message that they want to bring along with that, but can we simply just agree that bullying is wrong? And so let us, even with our youth that we work with, our children, our grandchildren, be very proactive in saying there will be no bullying here. If anything, we should be the ones st- standing up for those that are being bullied. And so let's be proactive in um, the joking, the teasing. So zero tolerance on joking. I, I sometimes tell our youth, and, you know, can we be more creative in our jokes? Instead of that's so gay, you know, how about that's so Baptist or that's so Presbyterian? You know, something a little more creative instead of that's so gay. Uh, but let's just, you know, agree that we will not have, have any more joking or bullying. Uh, we need to be convicted, consistent, compassionate, and last, we need to be complete. Complete in our uh, message, because we know that it is the truth that sets us free. So we as followers of Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, we need to focus on truth. But what does the Bible say about homosexuality? I think many of us will say, well, that's easy. The Bible says that homosexuality is a sin. 
And that is true, but you know what we've done? We have put a period at the end of that sentence and said nothing more. And do you know what that's equivalent to? That's equivalent to giving someone the one spiritual law tract. Have you ever seen that, the one spiritual law tract? It goes like this. You're a sinner, you're going to hell. Sorry. In case you didn't know, that would be bad news, okay? There's nothing good about that, and yet, that's the message we're giving to the gay community. You're a sinner, you're going to hell. There's no hope for you. It's no wonder why people in the gay community want nothing to do with the church. Because we have been giving them an incomplete gospel. And do you know, when we give someone an incomplete truth, that's just as harmful as telling someone a lie. And so what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? And that's why I love um, Brandon opening up with that passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul, you know, he lists these sins. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he lists 10 vices. And too often... Christians, we will kind of zero in on those two words that mention homosexuality and say, see, gay people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we kind of forget about all the other eight sins. Because if we do remember those eight other sins, most of us will be convicted ourselves and realize that none of us will inherit the kingdom of God. That's bad news. And yet, Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on, and he says, such were some of you. Let me say that again. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord and in the Spirit of our God. That, ladies and gentlemen, is great news. That's a message that we can proclaim from the rooftops to the gay community, to the straight community, to any community that needs to know about Jesus. That you can be washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of our Lord and the Spirit of our God. Let us, as we talk about this issue of homosexuality, be redemptive in our issue. In, in our message, and focus upon the main issue, which is the gospel, which is Jesus. Because someone in the gay community, someone in the church who's wrestling with same-sex attraction, their main issue is not homosexuality. Their main issue is to know Jesus and to fully surrender to him. That's the main issue. Everything else is just a peripheral issue. So let us focus upon that. Let's just say maybe you have a friend that might call you up and say, I want to share something with you. Can we talk? And they share with you that they are wrestling with homosexual feelings, same-sex attractions. They, they're wrestling with their sexuality. Do you know what to tell them? Well, here's some things that I suggest. First of all, thank them. Imagine how they probably kept this a deep secret for years, maybe, maybe decades, and finally they trusted you enough to open up with this secret. Thank them that they trusted you. Second, tell them they're not alone. Many people um, that are Christians living with same-sex attraction, they feel that no one will ever understand them. They think they're going to have to go through life all alone. 
And you can tell them, though I may not understand all the details about homosexuality, I'm willing to walk with you to Jesus. That can be the difference between life and death. Third, help remind them that their identity needs to be in Christ. Yes, you know, (laughs) in your teen years, in your 20s, in your 30s, sexuality can seem so overwhelming. You know, that's like all we think about with intimacy, relationships, uh, and, and, and the reality is no matter what we feel, our passions, our desires, those should not define us. What should define us is Christ alone. So we need to be reminded, reminded of that, all of us, daily. Because our calling is not to embrace ourselves or embrace our sexuality, but our calling is to embrace Christ. Fourth, be realistic. Don't just give these false promises that somehow if you read the Bible more, if you just pray hard enough, you can just pray away the gay. That's not how it happens. I mean, it's going to be a tough battle. I often tell people, you know, it was easier before coming to Christ. Before I came to Christ, I had an urge, I did it. I desire, I went for it. Now, I have a heavenly father that I want to please, and I have an enemy nipping at my heels. And so, don't give these false promises that it will take, you know, time, and, and, and yet, do, don't we have hope that others don't have that's not of this world? And so, in the midst of our struggles, God can be um, our rock. Fifth, don't focus so much on the externals. Often, um, you know, it used to be thought, well, how do we kind of fix someone, you know, a lesbian, you know, have her hair grow long and um, get her in high heels and a a long dress and, you know, teach a a gay man how to throw a football. You know, they'll be all fixed, you know, but that's focusing on the externals. And God doesn't really look at those things as much as he does at the heart. And wouldn't it be amazing if the change was from the inside out, not from the outside in? Sixth, Encourage God-honoring intimacy with the same gender that's non-sexual. One of, the, one of the best things that happened that God allowed for me was when I started at Moody, I moved on to campus, and I was on a floor, and I was able to develop these great relationships with some of the guys on the floor, three in particular. We met every week, at least once a week. We would pray together. We would share each other's burdens. We would tell each other how our week went. We tell each other when we fell. And you know what was so interesting? Not one of them struggled with homosexuality. And often I would think, man, thank God I don't have what they are struggling with. Because when they were weak, I was strong. When I was weak, they were strong. That's the body of Christ being the body of Christ. We need each other. Men, we need men. Women, you need women. I believe that homosexuality is a legitimate need fulfilled in an illegitimate way. I think all sin is a legitimate need fulfilled in an illegitimate way. And so we need to foster that. We need to encourage that. And I think that kind of comes easier for ladies, right? You ladies can have your best girlfriend that you can be really close and tight with, and you get on the phone, and you talk, and and you... Uh, talk and you talk, <laughs> you know? and you know, men, it's like five minutes, it's like forever. And yet, really, I think sometimes why men we kind of fall into sin is because we don't have that Jonathan or David to really 
hold us accountable and to sharpen us and to share each other's burdens and to kind of be that warrior buddy. So we need to encourage that. So what a gay man needs most is a relationship with another man that's God-honoring, intimate, but non-sexual. What a lesbian needs most, coming out of lesbianism, is a relationship with another godly woman that's, that's intimate and loving, and yet non-sexual. So we need to encourage that. So um, what should we do then? If that's kind of ministering to people within the church, how then do we outreach and reach out to those in the gay community? Well, before I tell you what we should do, I want to tell you what we shouldn't do. LGBT, for those of you that might not know this acronym, it's not something that you can um, order at the uh, restaurant. It's not a you know, sandwich or whatever. LGBT, that stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender. Um, so these are things that we should not do. First, do not compare homosexuality to an addiction. Or, you know, yeah, oh, I know. Well, homosexuality is, is a sin, just like any other thing, you know, like these, and you list all these sins. Well, people who are in the gay community, they don't see homosexuality as a sin. They see this as who they are. And also, not all gay men are pedophiles. I have a friend that sometimes say, why do Christians always compare me to a murderer? You know, that's not a good way to try to win someone to Christ. So be careful not to make those comparisons. Also, don't use these two words, lifestyle or choice. That, off, you know, that is part of our vocabulary and it makes sense to us. But for someone who's in the gay community, who's LGBT, that's very offensive to them because they don't see this as something they chose. They see this as who they are. And certainly, there's a little bit of truth to that in that I've yet to meet anyone who chose to be tempted with homosexuality. I mean, none of us chose to be tempted with sin, right? Did anyone choose to come from Adam? No, none of us did. <laughs> it just happened. But where the choice comes in is we choose how to respond to those feelings. But as someone who doesn't come from a worldview, uh, from Scripture, they don't understand. They can't separate who they are with what they feel, their passions, desires, and what they do. And so be careful not to use lifestyle and choice. Don't use this phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin. Yes, that's how we should reach out, but don't tell them that. Because <laughs> often the word that they'll hear is hate. Fourth, don't feel the need that you have to debate with people, to, that you have to answer these pointed questions. Um, and what I'm talking about is, is, is this. How many of you guys have ever been asked this question, do you think homosexuality is a sin? How many of you have been asked that before? And often you just think, this is not going to be pretty. You know it's going to be ugly. You know, if you say no, then you're not really saying what you believe. If you say yes, it's going to be kind of just the end of the relationship. And I'm just telling you, you know, when you sense that coming, in most situations, they already know where you stand. They're not asking for information. They just want to know, are you on my side or are you on that side? They want to put you into that box of being one of those right-wing kind of nutcases, right? So I'm just telling you, when you sense that, it's not time to kind of tell the truth because there can be a time, but that can be later on. But at that time, you don't have to tell them. What I, what I suggest you saying is something like this. You know, I value our friendship more and our relationship more than arguing and debating. Can we celebrate our similarities and tolerate our differences? And by simply saying that, that puts it back into their court. They may then say, well, you didn't answer my question. I would tell them, you know, the Bible says that we're all sinners. And make it personal and say, and I'm a sinner. And yet Jesus came to die for my sins. And if you simply believe in him, you can have your sins forgiven and live eternity with Christ. You just had the opportunity to share the gospel. 
But if at some point later down the road, someone does ask you, what's the Bible saying? They're really asking for information. We do have the right to tell them what God says. So those are things that we shouldn't do. What should we do? And I'm going to finish with this. First of all, we need to pray. Can you imagine if we actually mobilize the church to pray and fast for the gay community? I believe if we did, we might have a revival breakout in the gay community. Wouldn't that be amazing? And so let us pray and fast. My mom prayed and fasted for seven years. We need to listen. Second, listen. Often um, we're quick to speak but slow to listen. And as we listen, I think we'd realize that many of these people's stories are not different from ours. And sometimes these stories will just break your hearts. Third, be intentional. Take them out for lunch, dinner, for coffee. Um, Certainly people might accuse you of saying, what are you doing eating with that sinner or that gay or lesbian? But didn't the Pharisees accuse Jesus of eating with sinners? But how would those sinners know about Jesus if he didn't spend time with them? Fourth, be patient and persistent. Don't think that this is just going to be a pet project for the next six months. You know, for me, seven years that my mother prayed for is a short time. I know people who've been praying for decades. So be in it for the long haul. And last, be transparent. How do you share the gospel? Yeah, I know it's hard. You know, whipping out that four spiritual law tract and opening it up. And, you know, that can be difficult. But you know what you can do and might be easier? Just simply share about what God has been doing in your life lately. How has the gospel changed your life recently? Because we should not be the same as we were 10 years ago, 10 months ago, or even 10 weeks ago. We should be continually transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit and share about that. See, I would never have considered the gospel if I didn't see the gospel lived out in my parents' lives. I would never have picked up that Bible if I didn't see the Bible lived out in my mother's life and in my father's life. I did not leave homosexuality because I found it to be so bad. I didn't leave homosexuality because I found it to be so wicked. I left homosexuality because I found something better. And that's Jesus. Our job as followers of, as, of Christ is to show a dying world that Jesus is better. That Jesus is better than anything that this world has to offer. All the fool's gold that the, that the world offers, Jesus is better. That Jesus is better than any boyfriend, any girlfriend, any relationship, any job, money, career. As a matter of fact, Jesus is the best. And so let us, in our interactions, in our friendships, in our relationships, show the world that Jesus is the best. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of all these different issues, in the midst of confusion, Father, I pray that you will help us to reflect on Christ and help us to remember that it is the gospel that needs to be our core and help us to lift up Jesus. Father, we know that the reality of homosexuality in our community here in our church is here, that we have people within the body who are wrestling with same-sex attraction. We have 
brothers and sisters here who might have loved ones who are gay or lesbian, and help us, Father, be a place where we can journey together. Father, I pray that we would be centered upon your love, upon your truth, and help us in all that we do draw people to you. We praise you and ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you so much, Christopher. What we want to kind of give a little stretch here for a minute, uh, but don't go too far. I want you to take a minute. Um, there are little white index cards in the rack in front of you, and we want to make sure we have time to ask some questions, um, ask some honest questions, questions that you might not raise your hand in public and ask, but you can write them on a card, and we can put Christopher on the spot, and then... <laughs> And, and let him speak into some of these different things. It might be a personal scenario. I have this friend, and this is what they're saying, and I'm not sure what, what do I say to them. It might be, um, you know, I know some of the high school students, uh, you know, you're having conversations and debates every other day about this. What do I, how do I, you, know, you might have questions that have come up there, and you're not sure how to reply. Um, you know, family members, different things. You know what your questions that you have are. And you might have come in with some. Some of what Christopher talked about today might have raised some. Maybe you want clarification on something. This is a great opportunity for the next uh, about 35 minutes to, uh, to just dialogue and have a conversation with Christopher. He's laid a really good found, uh, foundation and groundwork. We know where he's coming from. So let's ask and... Uh, so I want us to take just a couple minutes. Um, if you've got your questions and you want to write them down, go ahead and do so, and then we'll collect those cards in just a minute. You don't have to write them down. You can just ask them. Are we recording this? Did we get it set up? Great. So um, what you'll do is if you ask it out there, I'll repeat it in the microphone so that we catch it on the recording as well. Um, but uh, so let's take a minute. Let, let Christopher take a breather too. And... Uh, uh, about it's 25 after, it's, it's about 23 after, about 25 after, we're going to come. Book table real quick, too, if you'd like. Um, so two, three minutes, and then we'll come back for some Q&A time. <laughs> 